The Selectors Show, Let's Talk About ESG, is sponsored by Invesco. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco, let's advance together. Capital at risk. Hello and welcome to CityWare Selectors podcast, Let's Talk About ESG. And joining me today is Neil Blanks, Research Director at Main Street Partners. Neil, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Neil, one of the biggest developments for asset managers this year was the introduction of SFDR reporting, which obviously kind of came not as a surprise, but as an overwhelming wave of things to do for a lot of firms. And now we had a few months to kind of get the grips of it. Um, what do you think this all means in the long run? Like, have you noticed any trends and anything that is concerning you as someone who is dealing with fund selection on a daily basis? Yeah, sure. I think there's there's a number of angles that you can come at this from. But in general, I think there's been a fairly conservative approach as to how UK asset managers have decided to classify their funds under SFDR. Obviously, the UK picture has been a bit clouded with Brexit. And the UK has taken a bit longer to get there, but the FCA has recently come out with proposals um, similar to SFDR, they've just lost a letter, so SDR. But yeah, in general, I think client demand, we're seeing for specifically Article 9 funds, I think, and to a, to a lesser degree, Article 8, but I think there's a, the picture is so clouded, I think, with Article 8, there's such a diverse mix of funds in there. Um, some clients have found it difficult to clarify exactly what funds are doing mm-hmm. in terms of their greenness. Um, so you've mentioned that Article 8 funds are kind of like a bit of a muddy picture. So why is that the case, do you think? And from what I understood so far, looking at that, it can be just pretty much anything. You can even have things like oil in there, gas in there. So uh, could, could you elaborate a little bit on that? I think one of the main issues with SFDR was that it's been left up to individual asset managers to determine how they've um, translated the rules, if you like. So um Article 8 funds, the official definition is that they promote environmental or social characteristics, and that's it. So that's obviously a very wide definition. And then it's been left up to the asset managers to distinguish how they translate that into practice. So I think that has had the knock-on effects in terms of the confusion, and that's where the muddied waters come in. I think in in Europe particularly, there there has been a a completely different um, approach to the UK, I think. And there is a very wide degree from sort of light green to dark green in terms of article eight funds, particularly. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about dilution of what it actually stands for, can we have an asset manager credibly claiming that 70% of his fund offering, even if it's a big company, is Article 8 compliant? Again, from the perspective of what you're hearing from companies, are they aiming to bring majority of their offering into the Article 8 fold? And if yes, uh, what does it actually tell us about their products? I think the overwhelming wave now is to integrate ESG. It's then up to individual investors, and that's where companies like Main Street Partners come in with our with our approach to rating funds. But 
you have to look under the hood, if you like. Um, you can't just take the Article 8 or 9 uh, classification as given. I think the, the way things are going, every single asset manager out there now is saying that they integrate ESG to some extent. Some have, uh, some have been doing it for I don't know, 20, 30 years, and uh, actually they've had to change their approach because they may not have been sort of marketing it in the right way or formalizing it in the right way. So it's an education process for the whole industry at the moment, but the there is no doubt at all that ESG is here to stay. You have some asset managers who are saying that they're integrating 100% of their AUM now. Some actually are. Others are a little bit more questionable, but that's another aspect. But yeah, the tide has definitely turned. Um, and it's... There is that issue of greenwashing out there. You can't just sometimes, you can't just take what the asset managers are telling you at face value, unfortunately. You, know, you need to dig a, bit, dig a bit deeper under the bonnet. Well, following up on that, I think this is a very much burning issue for the industry right now. Uh, so if you need to dig deep, so you can't just take Article 8 for granted, let's say, from your perspective, from the perspective of Main Street Partners processes, how do you see through greenwashing? What are the questions you can ask asset managers to see the real deal, for example? Are there any tips that you can use to actually work it out? Uh, what I would say is that there is no sort of, there's no shortcuts, basically. We have we have a fairly holistic approach to, to rating a fund from a sustainability angle. Uh, part of that process is having um, an in-depth due diligence call with a member of the portfolio management team for every uh, strategy that we, that we do a sustainable rating on. And you have to quiz the portfolio manager. You have to actually dig, dig under their process. The best way of doing that is talking about examples of stocks that are in their portfolio. We have our own sort of in-house rating systems and sort of flags for controversy. So if we, we notice, for example, a controversial stock in the portfolio, we can bring it up on the call and say, right, why do you, why do you hold this? And sometimes they have an engagement angle, so they're trying to engage with the company to turn things around. But other times you get sort of a bit of a wishy-washy answer, if you like, and that sort of raises alarm bells for us as well. So, yeah, I don't think there's there's no black and white way of um, approaching it, but I think you just have to dig under the bonnet, as I said. So in terms of controversies, can you give an, an example of the stocks that actually could set off some alarm bells or maybe if that is not accessible, uh, which kind of like funds, which type of funds you actually tend to see as positive examples of strategies that you want to keep in an ESG portfolio? In terms of sort of controversial stocks, I think, it, again, it comes down to the exclusion criteria that specific funds are using. There's the standard exclusions now for tobacco and coal, which are usually based on percentage of revenues. So that one's fairly easy. For example, if if a fund was employing an alcohol ban and then suddenly you, you saw uh, an alcohol name pop up with and sometimes you do see it because it just depends on the revenue banding that they're using and things like that. So it, again, it, it depends on the strategy and what exclusions they're using. But there's some stocks out there that you kind of do have a question mark over. You mentioned alcohol stocks. So I think this is quite an interesting one because uh, some ESG funds uh, own them, some exclude mm -hmm. them. So where do you draw the line, for example? Do you have any kind of like revenue threshold from your side on the Main Street Partners side, for example? Or you're kind of just leaning on what those funds are saying and if they are actually living up to what they're saying, basically? 
Part of the services that uh, Main Street offers is ESG advisory. So we help clients actually build their exclusionary criteria. So we have our own sort of documented process, I suppose. But within that, we obviously work with clients and they can set their own standards. So we have sort of uh, thresholds that we use. I think 20% is usually sort of the standard revenue threshold. And that's sort of across the industry. But Again, it's very client dependent and um, there's a wide range of techniques employed. Mm, But that means that one client might want to have uh, alcohol exclusion, let's say, but another one might be a bit more lenient towards it and you just need to accommodate that. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. Some some are very strict and just say 0% in terms of revenue threshold, Um, but then you can take it all the way up to sort of 30 or even higher than that. So yeah, it's it's very um, bespoke. Mm-hmm. Well, going back towards uh, the whole conversation about Article 8 and Article 9, what strikes, strikes me, especially when we think about those companies that say 100% of IOM is now compliant, what I've heard before as well is that actually asset managers who have done that for a long time, especially in the very beginning, were a bit more conservative in their assessments of Article 8 and Article 9 funds, but now they realize that actually they probably need to be a bit bolder about it because everybody else doesn't seem to have reservations they do. So aren't we punishing to a degree in a, in a weird way those who were doing it for a long time and have really strong ethics about things? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's a, it's a very tricky situation. I think everyone is trying to get ahead in terms of the, the race to become an ESG expert, if you like. But yeah, I mean, there are some asset managers out there who have actually been integrating ESG in one form or another for more than 20 years. And I think it's an education exercise for the whole industry at the moment. Um, perhaps those companies which have been more traditional and more conservative, as you say, they've had to sort of not up their game, but it's the way they communicate that message. And they've had to, they're not changing their process at all. It's just how they communicate it to investors and sort of emphasize that they have been doing it for a long time and and that's where the greenwashing angle comes in I suppose it's very hard to sort of you do have to question even though they say that they've been doing it for a long time again it means doing the deep due diligence and actually backing that up and checking that they have actually been doing what they're saying when you're ranking funds does it ever ring alarm bells when you see there is a traditional fund or it used to be a traditional fund for many years the portfolio manager is still the same very senior portfolio manager and then there is a version of that fund launched which is an esg version which either excludes certain things or kind of tweaks some exposures to to a certain degree uh, does it ever kind of like come across to you as suspicious and if yes what are you doing about it do you kind of like assess the fund and try to work out if it's genuine or not for instance yeah indeed it, it does raise a question mark i think in just terms there are some funds out there now that they have launched a specific sustainable version of a core fund um, and it does water down the, the message i suppose um, i think over time you will see assets migrate from a core strategy into the sustainable one but i think for an asset manager to actually take the plunge and go, just go straight in and say, right, we're going to convert the fund to a sustainable version. I think they're afraid of losing assets is, is what it comes down to. So there are quite a few now where you've got the dual mandates. But as, as I said, I think over time, the assets will migrate across. 
Mm -hmm. But would you recommend those new kind of ESG versions uh, to clients uh, or it depends on a case-by-case basis? Yeah, exactly. A case-by-case basis, I think. Um, We have analysed a number of those already. Some score quite well on our our metrics, but um, overall we do have question marks over. So yeah, case-by-case, unfortunately. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever, from digesting market and economic data to probing new trends and ideas. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. With a proven past and an eye on the future, we bring the latest thought-provoking investment analysis and diverse ideas directly to professional investors. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco, let's advance together. Capital at risk. One thing that I've noticed with Article 8 and Article 9, which is probably a continuation of our conversation about conservative assumptions that certain asset managers with pedigree and sustainability had in the beginning of the year, I've noticed that some started upgrading their strategies from Article 8 to Article 9 or from Article 6 to Article 8. Is that something that is concerning as well? Is that something that maybe is part of the whole greenwashing problem, let's say, or you're a bit more kind of like confident about this transition? I wouldn't say I'm confident confident about it. I think, again, unfortunately, it's a case-by-case basis. So I think this year it has been a very fluid market. There's been a lot of funds sort of transitioning, particularly from Article 6 to Article 8. But there, are, there have actually been cases where, uh, as you said earlier, asset managers may have played it conservatively to start with and classified their funds as Article 8. And now they're migrating them across to Article 9. So I think in terms of why there's specific disclosures, if you're an Article 9 fund, you have to make specific disclosures and prove that you're meeting your sustainability objective. So I think there's sometimes asset managers may have been worried about how they were actually going to do that and the reporting side of it. So I think that's possibly why they've they've decided to sort of go with the conservative approach and see how things go and then take the leap to Article 9. And when we look at active funds versus passive strategies, how does that compare in terms of an active fund being categorized as Article 8 and a passive strategy also being categorized as Article 8? Is that something that is mutually exclusive or actually can exist in the same domain? And if yes, uh, how that can actually kind of like go forward? I think there's room for both, and it very much comes down to what the end investor wants at the end of the day. I think, obviously, with active versus passive, the debate's been going on for years. But I think from from our point of view, um, I think sometimes it's easier to to classify funds as uh, ETFs or as Article 8 or 9, because at the end of the day, the passive instrument is just tracking a, a benchmark. So you look at the underlying index and the method, methodology and how they're actually implementing ESG. And then it, if anything, it's, it's easier to just to distinguish whether it's actually Article 8 or 9. So um, with the active aspect, obviously, there's various different ways of integrating ESG into an active investment process. And there's so many moving parts to it as well. So you've got the engagement angle. Um, and we look at the reporting aspect as well. So there's so many moving parts, but yeah, I think for an ETF, it's, it's fairly simple. Mm-hmm. 
So with ETFs, I think one thing that they can't do that active managers can is to tweak exposures as they go or completely exit certain stocks, let's say. So in that case, and I think you've alluded to some of those kind of milestones, what are you looking at in an ETF to kind of like back up their green credentials? Um, so for us specifically, we have a three pillar approach to rating funds and pillar one is looking at the asset manager. So when it's an ETF provider, we, we do exactly the same analysis, to be honest. Um, so we look at sort of their processes, what ESG resources they've got, their stewardship practices, um, and sort of whether they've been involved in any sort of controversy. So it, the process doesn't change at all, really. Um, and the pillar two then looks at the investment strategy itself. So what the investment strategy is trying to do, what's it trying to achieve and how it's trying to achieve it. And then pillar three is very much looking at the portfolio, so the holdings. And I guess that's where the emphasis does come with ETFs because you can get some controversial stocks in there sometimes. And obviously some, some ETFs hold a thousand securities. So it's, it's a bit of a mammoth job in terms of screening those. But. We touched upon an FCA's paper on uh, the new fund categories that the regulator is putting forward in the UK. And what struck me is that they are quite similar, but still a little bit distinct. So there are five categories uh, in the UK consultation paper. In Europe, they have three. So doesn't it mean a bit more of a workload for UK asset managers specifically? Because obviously Europeans, if they don't sell in the UK, maybe they don't need it much. but if you are based in the UK and you are servicing European clients, that it seems like you will have to have to report in lines to look after. Yeah, exactly. I think the burden for UK asset managers is going to increase, unfortunately. I think um, if, if the FCA proposals do get uh, approved, then yes. Um, I think ESMA in Europe as well has, has recently come out with proposals that actually go along similar lines. So they're looking at introducing two new subcategories to Article 8 and Article 9, with one eye on the EU taxonomy coming in. So those specifically are around whether an, invest, uh, an investment strategy has an environmental objective or not. Now, the, the UK sort of rate classifications are more looking at the EU taxonomy or the green taxonomy as it will be in the UK. Um, so they're, they're similar, but yes, there are going to be differences. And unfortunately, the burden is going to be on asset managers uh, to cope with that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And when we look at new subcategories, so you alluded to them, why would we need them? So you, you said that the EU green taxonomy or just the green taxonomy for the UK, obviously, which is again, going to be slightly different, uh, is dictating these changes. So can you elaborate a little bit on that, why this is happening? Yeah, as, as I said earlier, I think it's, it's partly due to the confusion over the Article 8 classification. There definitely needed to be some clarification just because of the broadness of the, of the funds in scope. So that, that's one angle. And as I said, the other angle is with the taxonomy coming in. So there's going to be increased reporting in terms of portfolios being aligned or the percentage of portfolios being aligned to the EU taxonomy. So it's just widening the the universe in terms of sort of light green, light green to dark green, I suppose, and splitting it up a bit more, which I think is the right thing to do. And it, it does make sense, to be honest. It's kind of a bit chicken and egg in, in that the SFDR regulation came in 
and sometimes the data is not just been is not available to aid the reporting requirements. So, but I think things are improving. I think one of the things that I was hoping for is to was to have some sort of international standardization, and we're not quite there yet, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So international standardization, what do you mean by that? Is that a body that will coordinate all of those kind of like report and sustainable requirements, or is it something else? Um, from my personal uh, perspective, I, I was hoping for specifically looking at sort of the EU, obviously that was at the, uh, the forefront, um, but I, I understand China's doing its own taxonomy that's based on the EU one. I'm sure the US will get there at some point. Obviously, the UK is coming out with its own green taxonomy. So you've got all the the different regions sort of trying to compete with each other. And it would have been great if there could have been some overall sort of agreement at the start saying, right, these are the metrics. These are the basic metrics that we need from companies and concentrate on getting those sort of done and dusted first. And then they could have taken the next step to doing regional sort of variances on it. Um, at the moment, we run the risk of sort of different jurisdictions going different ways, and it's just it, it could complicate things, unfortunately. But hopefully, hopefully, these things pan out. The EU green taxonomy is still being worked on, and from what I understood, is being enforced next year. If taken together, because we have uh, SFDR reporting, and let's focus on Europe only just for the sake of clarity. So we have uh, SFDR reporting, and now the EU green taxonomy is coming in. You're a portfolio manager uh, or an asset management company, uh, kind of like whichever one you are focusing on. Um, what it, does that mean for what you do? So obviously categorizing funds six, eight, nine, but now with the EU green taxonomy, where does that fit in? Again, it comes down to the disclosures and the requirements going forwards. Um, so from the middle of next year, I think that the, the disclosure requirements are going to increase. And that it comes again, it comes back to the data issue. It's fine having these requirements for asset managers to, to disclose how much of their portfolios are aligned to the EU taxonomy. But sometimes the data is just not there from companies at the moment. So it is a, it is a bit of a battle. I think asset managers have got quite a difficult role at the moment in terms of they're trying to do their best but sometimes the data is not just it's just not available so um, it, it's definitely still work in progress unfortunately but mm-hmm. time will we'll see improvements over time but I think um, yeah it's it's work in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, you work with different asset managers be it big players but also boutiques so one thing that I cannot help but wonder how does that impact smaller firms because obviously if you're a big asset manager maybe you can just hire the whole department that will be sifting through all those documents and reports and guidelines but if you are a smaller player someone who runs only one billion two billion you're really good at what you do from the investment perspective but you just don't have hands uh, elementary to deal with all the reporting uh, aspects so have you faced kind of like have you talked to firms that were actually concerned about how they're going to keep up with this Yes, definitely. Um, I think one of the things going forward in order for asset managers to distinguish themselves from the competition is actually on the reporting front, whether that be ESG metrics or whether you go down to sort of more detailed uh, reporting on engagement and stewardship. Um, It's definitely something that we've seen a lot of uh, movement on this year and there's, there's definitely a push to improve reporting generally but those aspects in particular I think 
large asset managers and boutiques have different battles to fight. Large asset managers have had the issue of what you alluded to earlier, how much of their AUM are they going to migrate across to ESG integrated? And smaller boutiques, they have the advantage, sometimes they can be a bit more nimble, I suppose, and there's specialist boutiques out there who only do Article 9 and impact fund investing. So for them, half the battle has, has been won already because they're, they're specialists in that role. And we work with a number of asset managers in, in their reporting as well. So um, it's, it's something we can help with as well. Mm -hmm. So the choice is either, well, you're stay focused and if you have one product, then it should be easier for you to scale it. But secondly, you just look for partners, be it either an advisor or maybe even an overarching kind of like distribution partner, large asset manager that manages multiple boutiques on the administrative side. Is that something we might be seeing increasingly more because of the cost of regulation elementary? Yeah, I, th I think you're probably going to see, I mean, we've seen it already in terms of mergers and acquisitions within the asset management industry, and I think that there's going to be more of that as well. I think the, the demand for ESG expertise is obviously growing all the time at the moment. So um, there's been a number of acquisitions that you've seen, um, some possibly less ESG recognised names buying sort of specialist ESG managers in order to gain that expertise. But... I think you'll see more of that as the time goes on, unfortunately. Thank you, Neil, for joining us today. Brilliant. Thank you. The Selectors Show, Let's Talk About ESG, is sponsored by Invesco. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco. Let's advance together. Capital at risk.